Thank you, Lewis. As Lewis did mention, it's kind of a just the two of us up here in, in this part of the service. And, and after I preach, Lewis is going to come up and redo the sermon in interpretive dance. <laughs> I, I would so pay to see that. Uh, <laughs> well, many, many of the men of our church are at the men's retreat. And uh, rather than move into the next section of Romans 8, I'm going to take a little bit more time in Romans 8, verses 28 to 30, the same verses Lewis preached on uh, last week. And by, by the way, before, I'm, before I get into that, <clears throat> I want to say a, a huge amen to Lewis's excellent studies in those verses. These verses are so rich, and, and, and we both agree that we could just spend weeks and weeks right here. Donald Gray Barnhouse is a very famous preacher from uh, a, couple, a couple of generations ago, and he wrote eight volumes on the book of Romans. I think it's eight, maybe nine. I'm not sure. And uh, what he did really, I mean, you know, how could you get that much? Well, what he did really was he taught all of the Bible through the lens of Romans. And a lot of his material was through chapter eight. <laughs> There's just so much here to look at and to revel in the beauty of what God does and his love for us. One of the things I also want to mention this week is we want to enter into the presence of God hearing these words, well done, good and faithful servant. We all know, I think, that Billy Graham heard those words this week. And thank the, God, thank the Lord for that man's ministry and his life, and the integrity of his ministry, which spoke as loudly as the message of his ministry. That was the other part of his message. And uh, by the way, Sherman Smith, who is the speaker for our men's retreat, had spoken at one of his, uh, was, gave his testimony at one of Billy Graham's crusades years ago. Uh, and, and we give thanks for that. We all want to stand before the Lord and hear that. Well done, good and faithful servant. We don't want to have been saved and then enter into his presence as 1 Corinthians 3 describes almost smelling like we came from a fire sale from hell, right? We, 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 we want to be a, a fragrant aroma before the Lord. We want to hear him say, well done. You've invested your life well. And part of the ways in which we navigate how to invest our lives well has to do with the way that we, we deal with the hard circumstances of our lives. Romans 8.28 is one of the most beloved verses in all the Bible because of the comfort it gives millions of Christians and has done over the centuries <clears throat> that we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. <clears throat> one of the most beloved verses in the Bible. It's also one of the most resented verses in the Bible, truth be told. Um, because sometimes it don't get me wrong, sometimes people take that verse and sort of sprinkle it on the top of a pile of suffering like a spiritual condiment without real concern for the people that they're talking to and the pain that they're experiencing without regard to its context either because Romans 8 is given in a context of suffering. Romans 8, 28 is all about suffering. Friday, this past Friday, 
This dropped into my box. Uh, some of you may receive uh, Breakpoint daily. This dropped into my box this past Friday from Eric Metaxas. I'm going to read part of it to you. There's a man named Victor Marx whose father was a pimp and a drug dealer. Four stepfathers, four stepfathers abused and even tortured him. To escape the emotional pain, <clears throat> he began taking drugs as a teenager. When he grew up, Victor escaped his tormented home by joining the Marines. Sent to Iraq, he transferred his anger to enemy soldiers. He also learned martial arts so that nobody could ever hurt him again. Victor was still in the Marines when his father got in touch with him. The last Victor had heard, he was a practicing warlock, a male witch. He sent Victor a letter apologizing for failing him and invited him to visit. And then he gave Victor a real shock. He told his son he had turned his life over to Christ. Victor went to church with his father and heard the message that Jesus loved him so much he had willingly died for his sins. For the first time in his life, Victor regretted the bad things he'd done. He broke into tears and he surrendered his life to Christ. And then Victor began to confront his past. God showed him he had to find his first stepfather and forgive him or he himself would stay hard, mean, and angry. Victor found the old man whose health had been destroyed by drinking and drugs. And the long story short, he witnessed to him. He led him to Christ. In the years that followed, Victor, now married with five children, began meeting with a trauma specialist who helped him confront the memories of abuse. He learned to forgive everyone who had ever harmed him. And he embraced Romans 8.28. Here it is, right here. All things work together for good to them that love God. We know God causes all things to work together for good. I'm continuing. These verses inspired the name of his new work, Helping Trauma victim, Victims, All Things Possible Ministries. Vic, I'm quoting Victor. Often, when the worst, most unfair, cruel things happen to a person, we can't see what the result will be. But if we love and trust God, he can redeem evil and turn it for good. And describes his ministry to thousands of kids who are in juvenile detention, uh, to, to t tens of thousands of traumatized children that he's ministered to in Iraq. And I'm quoting Victor again. The worst things in my life, the greatest injustices, have actually been turned around for good. Because our God is the God who restores all things. Friends, it doesn't get more real than that. So when you hear somebody say, hey, God causes all things work together for good. Great. Praise God for your broken leg. Praise God for your lost job. Praise God for your child's terminal cancer. Thank him for it. He's working all things together for good. Get excited. Well, friends, suffering isn't exciting. It's just not. Romans 8.23 says we groan, we suffer in this world, and our suffering is real, and when we suffer, we groan, but we're not alone. The Spirit groans alongside us. We cry out, Abba, Father, and the Spirit prays for us with groanings too deep for words. One of the points that we want to make clear is that Romans 8.28 displays the sovereignty of God in the context of suffering. We can't say that enough. The groanings of pain in this broken world. 
The Bible does not pretend our pain isn't so bad. The Bible does not pretend that the pain in your life would go away if only you had enough faith. That kind of attitude towards the groaning in this world is profoundly unbiblical. You never see God saying, Jeremiah, get excited about the destruction of Jerusalem and the math deaths of everybody that you know. You don't see Elihu saying, Job, have you thanked God for the death of your children? The Bible never ignores pain. Never it glosses over it or pretends it's not so bad. But we have the comfort of knowing that nothing comes into our lives that hasn't first passed through the hands of our loving Father. Whether He caused it or permitted it, He has purpose for it. It has a purpose. God doesn't do child abuse. Another way of looking at it is this. The sovereignty of God is not something that we have to explain, or worse, explain away. The sovereignty of God is our lifeline, friends. It's our lifeline. The glorious truth is that no matter what the circumstances, God's purposes in what you're experiencing, God's purpose in this will not be overthrown. And it finishes for you in glory. Sometimes God pulls back the curtain, sometimes, and lets us see why our suffering was permitted. Last week, Lewis told you the story, of, referred to the story of Joseph, perfect example. In the Old Testament, in Genesis 37 to 50, he was rejected by his brothers, sold into slavery, slandered by Potiphar's wife, put into prison where he honored God but was still ignored and thought he was, apparently he thought he was going to die in prison and at the, end of his, uh, at the end of the book, when he has been restored, he is in charge of Egypt functionally. And he says to his brothers, you meant it to me for evil, but God meant it for good. Why? Because we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Years ago, my daughter Beth, had, I'm going to tell you, tell you a story and I have to apologize. I'm getting older, and I can't remember if I've told you when I've told you stories, okay? So, oh, it's doddering Gary up there. Well, I can't remember if I told the story to you or to my growth group. So if you've heard this before, just pretend. To enjoy. <laughs> my, my daughter, Beth, graduated from college, and uh, she was a senior, as a senior music education major she wanted to teach and she wanted to teach in a christian school um, and the school that she wanted to teach at was in knoxville christian academy of knoxville it's very much a sister school to ccs here so she wanted to teach at cak christian academy of knoxville very large christian school the great music program and she interviewed they had an opening she interviewed and she didn't hear and she didn't hear and she didn't hear and finally, uh, there was a school in Delaware that wanted her. What's Delaware? But this school in Delaware, that's actually another sister school, the CCS, wanted her to come up there. And she went up there, she interviewed. Eh. But what happened was um, she never heard from CAK, Christian Academy of Knoxville. 
So she went to Delaware. Or she, she told the people in, at, at Delaware that she would come there. The next day, the people in Knoxville call her. And apparently what happened, well, not apparently, what happened was we had moved to Chattanooga, Betsy and I, and we, and Beth wrote down our new telephone number wrong by one digit. They had been trying and trying and trying and trying to call Beth. So they asked her if, if she would consider coming up to there to teach. And I'm thinking, yes, yes. And she said, I gave my word. No, no, no. <laughs> she said, I gave my word. And she went to Delaware. She taught. She lived with a horrible woman named Cruella DeVille. <laughs> you know, it really was like that. I mean, it was, she was really vicious. And, uh, you know, she would cry. Oh, my, it was awful. While she was up there, she built a huge music program. She did great. Up there two years, this guy showed up from Arizona who was doing a co-op in Pennsylvania and came across the border to see his boss's children in a choir performance. And he saw the choir director, and he thought, hello, They've been married 13 years, have three wonderful children. God causes all things to work together for good. You know, at the time, what I'm saying is this. There are times when God lets us see why certain things happen. He, we get to see the reason for it. And here's what we do. Often, in fact, most often, we don't find out why. So here's what we do. We extrapolate from those times when God shows us what his purpose is. We extrapolate from those times to the times when we don't know why. And we say, okay, but I trust him. I trust him. I don't know why, at least yet. I can't defend all the details of his blueprint to you or even to myself. I can only point to the love and wisdom of the architect who drew the blueprint. Who works all things on that blueprint for our eternal good. Whether I understand it or not. Lord, I don't know what you're doing here. And I don't know why you've permitted this, but I'm yours. There's an old saying that's biblically true. Sometime God calms the storm. Sometime God calms his child in the midst of the storm. So God's sovereignty anchors Romans 8, 28. And, and, and is laid out in verses 29 and 30. He has his reasons, which include his good purpose for your life. And here's, here's, what, here's where I'm headed with this. There's especially one purpose that's embedded in the doctrinal chain in verse 29 that I want us to focus on. That purpose that you would be conformed to the image of his son. Lewis has already covered these words, uh, the, the verses, and, and it just great, 
doctrinal words. And, and the only response that you can have to what God tells us here is the response, wow. If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How would we not also with him freely give us all things? Wow. What can you say to these things? If God is for us. So my, part of my purpose is, is to look at this one phrase. The purpose of predestination. Now, you know, we talked about that last week. And we're going to talk, be talking about that in chapter 9. Some of you think, Gary, you and Lewis keep talking about chapter 9. That you're going to get to that when you get to chapter 9. And if you're curious about that, read chapter 9. Okay. Just go ahead. It's there. But the purpose of God's activity, his predestination, is that we have been predestined to a purpose. The purpose is our... Now, the result is our glorification, right? Verse 29, whom he foreknew, he predestined. Whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified, he glorified. So the, the, the result is glorification. But the purpose is in verse 29. He says it in a phrase that we haven't had time to develop yet. And, and I hope that after you see this, that your response is, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? Here's what he's doing for you, ultimately for his glory. He has, been, you, he has predestined you to become conformed to the image of his son. Now, think about that. Just let this sink in your soul. And, and maybe as a result, think about your salvation differently. Think about evangelism differently. You have been predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. There's truth. There is truth in the claim, be saved so that your sins will be forgiven. But there's even more truth in the statement, be saved in order to be godly. Salvation is not God's plan for my happiness. Salvation is God's plan for my holiness. It's not to make me happy. It's to make me godly. God's purpose, and understand the way in which I mean this, God's purpose in your life is not to get you saved. Many churches hold evangelistic meetings and often say that the purpose of the church in the world is evangelism. But evangelism is not the end. It's one of the means to an end. The end result of your salvation is that you would be glorified, verse 30. But what does that look like? That's described in verse 29. That you would be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Or put differently, you have not been saved to be saved. You've been saved to be sanctified. You've not been saved so that you have fire insurance from hell. You've been saved to bring heaven to earth as you look like and, and, and talk like, and love like, and think like Jesus. That is your purpose. It's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 is about, very famous verses, right? That we present our bodies living sacrifices. Why? So that we would be renewed in our minds, think differently. That's what all of Romans 12 through 16 
is about. Put this into practice. Sanctification is not something that we do for God. It's something that God does for us. It's not our work. It's God's work. If you are saved, if you have believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior and had that that wonderful transaction take place where his sins were your sins that were on him are switched (laughs) for his righteousness that is imputed to you through faith in Jesus. If you are saved, then the purpose in, uh, in your life is that you would be sanctified. And it's clear from this passage that one of the ways in which God does this is suffering. It comes right back around to that. That's why Hebrews 12, 1 to 3 says this. Just listen to this. And this is in a context of suffering. Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Because God's purpose is, is through suffering to sanctify you. Philippians 1.6 makes exactly the same claim as Romans 29, uh, 8, 29, and 30, but without the doctrinal words, he who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. The sovereign God of the universe has saved you so that you would become like Jesus. We can't say that enough, but we're not passive observers in this process, were active participants. Lewis mentioned Philippians 2.12, I think, last week. So then, my beloved brethren, just as you have also obeyed, not in my presence only, but now also in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for, it's in you, work it out, incarnate it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Literally, the phrase in Romans 8.29, conform to the image of his son, literally, it's to have the same form as his son. To have the same form as Christ. Christ is the original. We are to be copies of the original. You are to have a Christ-shaped life. You are to have a Christ-shaped marriage. You have a Christ-shaped relationship with your children. You have a Christ-shaped relationship with your parents. You have a Christ-shaped relationship with your husband or wife. You have a Christ-shaped relationship at your job, the integrity of the way that you do your work and the relationships you have with your peers. You have a Christ-shaped relationship to your suffering. You are to look like Jesus. And you're to have a Christ-shaped relationship with the church, the body of Christ that Jesus loves so much, he'd rather die than live without us. The many brethren among whom Christ is the firstborn. By the way, the last part of that phrase, there's a definite purpose that flows from being conformed to the image of his son. Here it is. 
that he might, verse 29 says that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. This does not mean, however, now if somebody is not walking with Jesus, that somehow Jesus's ministry got derailed. That's not what that's saying. But rather that your sanctification is a part of God's plan for his son. The term firstborn contains two ideas, preeminence and family identity. The preeminent one is the most important one. Christ is preeminent. The Old Testament term firstborn referred to the heir who received the birthright, who received the double portion, who, who became later the head of the family. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 1.18, He is also head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn. There it is again, the firstborn from the dead. That he, might, he himself will come to have first place in everything. So the, first of all, to point to Christ as the preeminent one, the most important one. But secondly, it relates to family identity. If there's a firstborn, then there are others who follow. And that's the point. There are others who will be members of the same family. If you're in Romans 8, look down at verse 17. If children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be, he's come back, come back around to this, glorified with him. There are others who follow that are members of the same family. Remember what Jesus said, whoever does the will of my father who's in heaven, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. The point is that others, we are to become like Jesus because we're related to him and that others would look at us and say, they've been with Jesus. See how different they are. Now, becoming glorified, maybe we talked about the already and not yet parts of becoming like Jesus in other passages and in other sermons. Becoming glorified is another part of the already and not yet. Have you noticed verse 29 says, I'm sorry, verse 30 says he also glorified. All these past tenses Lewis referred to last week, are, they're all in the past tense. We're, we are aware that there's an already and a not yet part of that. We're aware that our bodies are not yet glorified. We were just praying for prayer requests over physical issues. Our body, Philippians 3.21 says, refers to the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has to subject all things to himself. I remember eating in, at the cafeteria one years ago. I was eating with one of my students. And uh, he had some question he wanted to talk about, so we ate, uh, ate together and talked about it. And he watched me take a bite and as I'm taking this bite he said right in the middle of it Dr. Phillips don't you long for the day when you will have a glorified body he didn't say we he said you and you know that's not a thing to say to your professor before he turns your grade in <laughs> but the truth is that that is what we long for we long for that. We, we long for what God will bring to fruition. But here's what I want you to know. It's not contingent. It's a done deal in the mind of God. And it's in process now. There's a real sense in which that glory train has left the station. 
Verse, uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Do you remember Moses when he came down from the mountain? Because of the reflected glory of God, he wore a veil. That's what 2 Corinthians 3.18 is about. We all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. So Moses came down. He's got this veil on. But eventually Moses lost that reflected glory of God. And the point is that our faces are unveiled and we will never, ever, ever, ever lose the glory of God because we will be glorified with him. What, what would we say to those things? Well, if God is for us, who's against us? Sometimes we look at sanctification, and, and I know, you know, this morning we're, we're just sort of dipping right back into the same passage and lifting out this one phrase and focusing, looking at it a little bit. But here's the thing. Sometimes we look at sanctification, that is becoming like Jesus, conformed to the image of, of his son, so that people see Christ when they see us. Sometimes we look at that process as an option. Sometimes we, we look at it as separate from salvation, maybe as if it's a, a second stage of belief or of commitment. Like, you know, I decide to be saved, and then I decide, once I have my fire insurance from hell, I then decide to be sanctified, maybe if I want to. But Scripture is clear. There is no high road of discipleship and, and some symmetrical low road of spiritual mediocrity. And if that's your plan, you need to look at the gospel again. We were not intended to inhabit the spiritual defeat of Romans 7, if you remember our studies there. Oh, This chapter begins by saying there's no condemnation. And verse 30 tells us that every believer who starts out with no condemnation ends up with glorification. And that's what causes Paul to break into the hallelujah chorus. By the way, have you noticed that he doesn't lose any along the way? The text does not say Those whom he foreknew, 90% of those he predestined. And of those he predestined, 93% of those he called. And of those he called, 87% of those he justified. And of those he justified, hmm, 76% of those he glorified. No. <laughs> the demonstrative pronoun is clear. These, same one. God doesn't start with a hundred sheep and end up with 99. He ends up with a hundred. And that is all to the praise of his glory. So you have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Think about that phrase. Revel in that phrase. 
And when we're going through the hard times, realize that God has a purpose of glory in our lives that we don't fully understand and that we don't see. And sometimes we don't understand how God is putting the tapestry together. But he is in process of, of accomplishing his will in your life and in mine as we look to him and say, okay, Lord, I don't know what's going on here, but I trust you. I am yours. I am yours. Have you ever noticed the theme of glory that it's repeated? Did you notice it's repeated four times in Romans 8? Have you noticed that it, it actually occurs elsewhere in the book of Romans? If you look at your bulletin notes and you see that list, you'll see all the times that it occurs in the book of Romans. Listen to this precious truth. Just, you can follow along in your Bibles or just listen. In Romans 1.23, in our sin, we change the glory of the incorruptible God for something far less, resulting in idolatry. In Romans 2.7, we were meant to be those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory. In Romans 2.10, God made us to receive glory and honor and peace to every man who does good. In Romans 3.23, because of our sin, we have fallen short of the glory of God. In Romans 4.20, Abraham was an exceptional believer who grew strong in faith, giving glory to God by his life. In Romans 5.2, we exult in the hope of the glory of God. In Romans 6.4, Jesus was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. In Romans 7, the whole chapter is about spiritual defeat. In Romans 7, oh, there's nothing about glory there. Never mind. Romans 8. Verse 17, if we suffer with him, one day we will be glorified with him. Romans 8, uh, 8, 8.18, and that is because the sufferings of this present time are not to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. In verse 21, all creation awaits for the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Romans 9.4, he's going to argue that in the Old Testament, the Israelites were the custodians of the glory of God in their worship. In Romans 9.23, God always intended to make known the riches of his glory to those who are being saved. In Romans 11.36, Paul bursts out in praise. To him be the glory forever. And in Romans 16, verse 27, the last verse in Romans concludes to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. Nothing can defeat God's purpose in bringing you to glory. And in that process, he is glorified. In fact, nothing, neither life nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other mode of existence or being, any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we thank you for this glorious truth about glory. We praise you that your purposes will be accomplished. And Lord, our role, while active, is also to rest in the knowledge and in the joy of walking with you, becoming more like Jesus day by day. 
I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would please take your hymnals and turn to hymn number 72.